I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. In this episode and the last of our current series, I'm really excited to welcome someone who spent the last 10 years shaking up the furniture industry. Founding Made.com in 2010, his company has sparked a revolution with made-to-order models designed to make quality products affordable to the masses. Today, the business is a runaway success, reporting over £150 million in revenues and is expanding rapidly across Europe. With me is Made.com's co-founder and former chief operating officer, Julien Khaled. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thanks. Hi, everybody. So uh, Made.com is a business that I, I've known for many years. But just explain the backstory and uh, how Made came about, because it was a, a new way at the time of engaging with customers and selling furniture and sourcing it. And that's continued. Yeah, well, actually, it's a pretty long story, so I'll try to make it short. Nine years ago, the three, I mean, we, we started the business with actually four founders, three exec, one non-exec, Ning Chloe, Brent, and myself, when you were looking at the furniture market in 2010, which is when we started, as a customer, you had no much choice. If you wanted to buy an item that, if you just needed a table or a side table because you, you, you were moving into your flat and you just wanted something functional, you could get it at your all lovely Swedish uh, neighbors for a very decent price and it was actually pretty good looking. And that, 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 that was, you had a good fit on the market. However, if you wanted anything better, the market was pretty crap. Everything was either too expensive or of a too low quality or everything was looking the same. And that was one issue. That was for the customer. But at the same time, if you were a designer, you had no access to the market either. Nobody on no big chain was betting on new designers, on new designs because of the way the industry was working. If you were a big retailer at the time and you had like, as the example I like to take is you had a hundred stores, you wanted to launch a new line of sofas. Um, let's say you have three colors, four sizes, that makes 12 items. To just have one, one of each in a store, you had to buy 12 times 100. If my, if my math are right, that makes 1,200 items that you have to pre-buy four months in advance. That's the manufacturing and the shipping lead time. You have to take the risk four months in advance. Then you get them in your store. If they sell, good. But then you have no more inventory left. If they don't sell, you're stuck with a whole lot of money that you don't know what to do with. So what we did is we just tried to reinvent the way items were developed on design on the items were supplied through creating through e-commerce on online directly between customers on factories on the original model actually was to say we're going to develop just a few items a few SKUs that we're going to carefully uh, select we also had a tool from the beginning where customers could help us vote by voting select the item they wanted to see sold we would develop them with designers on with the factories and we would put them on sale day one. We would gather orders for those items. We would sell thousands of them because we would be super nice, super good looking, very good quality and very cheap because we don't have to finance inventory. We have no middleman in the process. We have no stores to finance and we could sell them 30% of the price or 50% of the price. They would have needed to be sold on the market the way the industry was built. And we would gather those orders, we would place them to the factory and we would deliver the whole thing within three to four months. But that would not be a problem because that was part of the story. 
if you wanted to buy direct from the manufacturers, you had to wait. And the USP of the company on what we're trying to achieve and what the team is working very hard on achieving at the moment is still the same. It's delivering great quality, good design that you won't find elsewhere at a very decent price. So just backtrack slightly. So you have to still curate for the designers. And the products, do they have the made name on them or is it always a third-party designer that you're curating? It's always a collaboration. Today, everything that gets released has either been designed by our in-house design team or together with our in-house design team in collaboration with an external designer, in which case they have their name with our name on the item. In case of a collaboration, it's, it's, it's great for everybody. I mean, the guys get a commission. If it works well, they make millions. It happened. And they get their name out there. And in our case, it's the same. Let's remember that at the beginning, nobody knew us. We were coming to the market. We were actually three French founders in the UK selling you a sofa that you would get for £500 that would look very good. And we were telling you that this sofa would, would be costing a 1000 or a 5500 pounds on the high street and you would get it in three months, but we wanted your cash straight away. So there was a big element of trust we had to build and that was with customers, but that was also with designers. And in some cases it worked extremely well, in some cases it didn't work that well because the item just didn't take off. But does it work for designers too? Can they almost test what they think would be good in the market through your business? And if it doesn't work, they can move on to another design. Is it sort of a, is it symbiotic? First of all, we were giving them a hand. Most of these guys couldn't get elsewhere because, no again, access. the industry would not, get, would not take them or the industry would not take them anymore. Or first designer, I remember well, had been working with the likes of Conrad and all those great quality on design guys, but wasn't working with them anymore. I'm talking of Stu, Stuart, this is his name, an amazing guy. The first time we met, actually, we were meeting so that he could help me understand better how the regulations regarding furniture were working in the UK. But just before the meeting, I went to his website and I found this amazing desk. And I was like, Stuart, by the way, your item, I think, would fit very well with audience, which was a bit of a bet because we were just starting. I think he was selling a few a year at 3K or 2K. The numbers might not be right anymore, but the, it's roughly that. And we sold a few thousand at 350 pounds. So just to make it sort of simple for the people listening, so your model really was to offer access to designers to the market, but also was to avoid inventory, which yep. as you're saying, you know, that can kill traditional retailers and the high streets suffering even more now than it was when you started out. Has your model evolved since then or has that remained the same? Because then also just talk us through yep. where you get these things made because you're trying to offer high-end furniture at a mid-market price yep. and mid-market furniture at a... Swedish competitor sort of price. Yep. So there's two levels, aren't there? And very True. quickly, you can get into a huge number of SKUs. So just explain the, the crowdsourcing and where you get these things made and why. So to be honest, the inventory part of the model, customers, they don't care at all. Customers okay. don't, but you do, don't but you? But that's, that's what enabled us to make it happen. Not having inventory makes your cost base lower. On the cash, you need to invest in inventory uh, lower too. We don't have to finance it and we don't have to... Uh, highly discount stuff we don't sell because we have nothing we don't sell too well. So if you're a product company, you're retailing in Europe and you want to know where you want to manufacture, you have two big options. Either you manufacture locally, we'll say in Europe then, um, doesn't have to be specifically in your country or you manufacture in the forest. If you manufacture locally, depending on what you sell, let's say you sell sofas, 
everything might be very lean because you go to UK factories and the UK has amazing factories. One of our main supplier for the first five years or more was a UK factory. And you go there, product development is a bit more lean. And the metaphor for that is you just speak the same language because you actually speak English. And you're near to the factory. So it, it takes less time. And then your MOQ, your minimum order quantity per item, is often one. You just have to fill a track to make it efficient. Well, why is it one? Is that because they're willing to share some risk because their cost is clearly more than if you, one I, sale? So I remember the second time I visited the factory in the countryside and I asked them, because they had an MOQ of one, and I was like, if we place orders by five, does it get cheaper? And he was like, no. I was like, if we place it by 50, because this collection is selling very well, do we, does it get cheaper? And he was like, not really. And I was like, why? Because of the way, it's just the way the manufacturing line was done. They had been built to be able to do individual designs one by one. That's the way the so machine no economies worked. of scale that's all built in. No economies of scale. I mean, some, but not huge. But the, the benefits you get, though, if you manufacture in Europe is you get flexibility in product development. You can have um, a lower quantity of skew, per skew uh, ordering, and you have a shorter lead time. And usually you pay on delivery, 100%, or 30 days post delivery. So you, the risk you put in an order is actually zero. If you want to do it cheaper, because any way you look at it, Manufacturing in Europe is always going to be 20 to 30% more expensive than manufacturing in the Far East, including shipping price, for the same quality. And you can get amazing quality in the Far East if you pay the right price and if you deal with the right factories. The issue, though, on the, the trade-off is a cash trade-off because you, in the Far East, have to order minimums of 20 per table, 100 per lumps, 5 per surface, you have to fill containers too, but also you place your order like three months in advance because of your two-month manufacturing plus your one-month shipping. And you usually have to pay a deposit, which you can switch at some point. So cash-wise and risk-wise, that's much more complicated. And was that worse when you started? That The deposit was bigger? Has that shrunk? I don't know how it works now, to be honest, because it's been a while that we haven't been a small player. Um, in 90% of the time, you had to pay a 30% deposit on your order on 70% a week after it was shipped from China. So you still have some cash involved. If you start pre-selling it before placing the order, you can actually finance that. And well, that, okay, was, that, yeah. was, that was the whole original financial working capital model. But let's just go back in time slightly. So the model you, you saw and recognized, you thought yeah. there's got to be a better way of doing this. Yeah. The reason why I think we got that model right is we knew our business. Honestly, though, the first people we talked to, most of them got us to think about like dropping it. I remember three months in business, we hadn't launched yet. We paid that expensive but very good consultant who to help us think about all the supply chain on the operations on how to how to build it, just to give us his feedback for like three days. And, and within an hour of sitting together on that room, and I was with Chloe and him, he stopped. I, I'm always using that image because it, it's still in my head. He stopped and he was like, guys, by the way, what the hell are you doing? But why though? What was the big blocker? He was like, I tried. I've been in the industry of delivering furniture to home for years and I lost all my hair and he had no much hair left. And it, it, it's, it's a strong image. It's like, it's too stressful. And you know, the worst thing here is 
what worries everybody in our industry is not only innovation in supply channel product development that we brought in, is the nitty-gritty of delivering something to somebody's home, which is supposed to be a, a commodity at the end. But I guess that when you started out, it wasn't as easy as it could be, whereas today, you know, logistics now is it's almost oh. off the shelf. It, it, it evolved quite a bit, but it was, it, it was not crap, and it's still not perfect. What makes a difference when you jump into it is how much effort you invest into making things that went wrong go okay before going well. Um, I think I'm diverting from the question, but we launched the company. We opened the website on March 21st, 2010. We had an amazing big collection of two items, the table, called the Oliver table on, on a pair of two chairs in aluminium called Navy, I remember it. On a, a week later, we had those two items plus four coffee tables, and then we added five lamps, and then we added bean bags. And so it was a very, very limited quantity of skew with a small team of eight when we launched. And people forget that, first of all, we didn't sell thousands of items. So were you expecting though, this wave of um, orders to come in? You kind of expect that you're going to sell volumes because you need volumes to, to, to place them to your manufacturers. And you get a good PR jump because you have an amazing set of investors and great people around you on a good story. And the first day you sell two items or maybe one, and, and you know what? That's normal. Again, nobody knows you. You have no traffic. And, and people have to trust you. So you sell two on zero, on one, on zero, on, on three. And then one morning you wake up on... As you're a quite young new founder, you check your sales. That's the first time you do before checking your phone. And you have 10 sales at 8 a.m. Wow, what's happening? And we were featured also on a newsletter, but so we had an amazing day and then it goes down again and, and you just have to start adapting your model. So we tweak straight away in the way we were placing orders and then it starts taking off and suddenly you have your first items hitting the UK on some of them are delayed, by the way, because you realize that, I mean, manufacturing lead time on quality control is complicated. But it sounds like you were all in from day one almost. You weren't trying to look for MVP, product market fit, no, we talk about today. You, you just all in, let's do this. Yeah. And, I mean, and well, you, you, have a, you have a lot of ways you can do it. Managing the whole end-to-end -end process costs money because on, on people because you need product developers, we need people on the ground to source, you need quality control people, you need take guys to their other website, customer service, content. You need to have a big team. Well, that brings me neatly onto the point about you raise some money over the years. So yeah. you're probably up to, what, 80, 90 million dollars, is it? Yeah, quite a, a quite a significant amount of money. So where's that gone? And you've been on a, a, a must be an extremely complex journey in terms of going for those initial, you know, 10 orders and your phone in the morning to a business now that's doing, what, 200 million euros? Yeah. And just talk us through the pain that you must have gone through in terms of making that, that work. Mm, yeah, where has the money gone? Pff, top level, if I had to think about it, it's most of it is the teams. Secondly, a bit into the marketing to keep growing at the right pace. But we've always been pretty stingy with marketing. I think so, rule yeah. number one in spending money is not to spend money. But you think all, you always seem to think that all that money goes into marketing and building a no, brand. No, no, no. Yeah, case. but we've been, we've been. We raised two and a half million on the paper of, almost in, in April 2010, and we re-raised seven in January 2012, and we hadn't burned half of the money we had. What's very good into, into having cash early is also when, when you have failures, you can deal with it quite easily. Yeah. When, when everything goes wrong, and I'm going to get into that now, when your delivery company goes kind of bust or rogue or they just deliver a crap service, you can refund deliveries, and you don't think about it, just, just do it. So... 
what were the challenges? The challenges, I think, depend on the stage. On at the very beginning, your one, your biggest challenge is to prove that you actually have something that sells. That your USP, your unique selling proposition, which if we talk startups, in my view, is the most important thing in business, is actually working and people are willing to buy from you. So that's the first month. Then your second challenge arrives when you have orders and you have to fulfill them. So you have to deal with manufacturing issues on, on delays on when it goes right, then deliveries. And the first batch of items that we received and we dispatched, I remember it pretty well because I went myself to the warehouse. So we label everything. We dispatch it on a Wednesday, on a Thursday. And I remember I'm on Friday. One of my best friends is living for the U.S. for two years. He's arriving in London. I'm supposed to go home, welcome him. And, and I start receiving emails from customers who we had told would get a call from the delivery company and they had no call. And we realized that the first batch of items, maybe 50 to 100, got lost because we sticked the wrong labels. And then the first batch or second, I don't remember, half of the products arrived broken because of, could be the delivery company fault on the way they handle product, could be your fault in the way you package product. And you have to deal with all that. But the point, you, you always maintain liquidity in terms of having cash available meant that you could overcome mm. these issues. Lots of companies where you're trying to sort of avoid dilution and raise money in, in small pieces along the way. And when something like that happens, it means that in many businesses I've seen and been involved in, it can kill them. Yeah. Whereas you had the, the, the wiggle room, essentially, to overcome them. So my rule is, when you need cash, you need, you need 500. Rule number one is you raise a million, if you can, if you can. Rule number two is you raise it before you need the cash. And rule number three is you prefer raising it quickly to getting a slightly better valuation. Because the earlier you get the cash, the better you're going to be on the, the more risk it gets, on, 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 on the more time you can spend on the business. And I, I've seen, I'm working with a lot of entrepreneurs now. I'm, I'm helping them scale or build their business. And I've seen some of them, two amazing guys come to me on, on, on they were in the middle of their fundraise. They had amazing numbers. They had good numbers but growing fast. And then they went on the fundraise and then they had that debate of raising 500K at 2.5 million valuation post or pre. And they wanted pre and the guys wanted post and then they lost four months. And if you look at the, the, if you look at the digits, what, what difference does it make in your cap table if it's post or pre? It looks, to you, it looks like it's, it's 20% of the valuation. At the end, it's a few points. It's nothing. And they lost a few months on their business, lost a lot of momentum because they had to spend much more time on the road raising cash. So raise more cash quicker. That's my view. And in terms of your, your If you business, need cash. Huh? You, you need you, cash, if yeah. you, I love businesses that don't need to raise cash. Yeah, but quite often I have one, and I've had this conversation on this podcast where people think that you have to go and raise money and it can become a free option actually. So in some ways having the, the rigor of using the cash you've got carefully can actually build a better business, a yep. better foundation. Now, one of the areas you would have thought a lot of your the money you've raised went into is software. We have a, I think we have an 80 people team now. So I can, I can tell you a lot, of, a lot of money is going into software. Right, okay. um, well, why is that there? So what's your software? I think we started on Magento. Yeah. Magento on, on the front end. You have a website we built on Magento, which at the time was good. And the back end started with being the back end being how you record your purchase orders and how you follow the whole post sale flow was built on Excel. 
until my MacBook crashed too many times oh, every really? year. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not kidding. I was managing orders coming in on customer orders being placed on reconciliating them on sending like part uh, Excel spreadsheets to the warehouse on a daily or weekly basis myself until until you have too many lines. And then you were squirting that into a CRM? Or? And then we moved it into um, a back-end software called, at the time, OpenERP, now called Udo, which was pretty useful. Um, we couldn't find anything on the, sh- the shelves because pre-selling stuff and then selling it on the way was not something very standard in the industry. So we had to build our back-end on, on configure it together with a team helping us on that by, by ourselves. And I remember the, the moment we decided to do that was actually... Or CTO coming to Ning on myself, telling us, guys, you need to think fast on this one because we can't handle the bus test. And what is the bus test? It was like, the bus test is if Julian or I is being hit by a bus tomorrow, we're, we're in a pretty bad position because we do everything manually and, and we, need to, we just need to streamline stuff. And it's not very efficient. So when was this? You did a seven and a half round and a $38 million round. Yeah. And when did you start to sort of build that that middleware i think we started building it within six months okay so so my view on should you build the whole back office straight away on the whole processes straight away from day one blah blah and invest a lot of money into it is no but you're gonna have to do it quickly why no because you don't know your business when you start you don't know how it's gonna evolve you don't know what you're gonna need so you need to build your physical procedures and then you can build a back office that sustains it and helps it. So it makes sense to me that you, your initial model, you were able to you know, crowdsource information about demand and interest in designs. And then you dropped that, didn't you? And now it's come back. So why was that? It seems to make sense to always have that within your model. So the model hasn't evolved too much. I mean, we, we just got better. On the supply, on, on the lead time, on everything, we got better in managing our batches of items, so you, you on our ordering history. systems, see, on, yeah, on, trend. On, on payment terms, on lead time with factories, and we sometimes pre-buy to get the lead time done for customers. One day we realized that every time we reduced the lead time on the product page, by one week we were gaining 3% conversion, so it, it has an effect. We got better at that, and then you had the part about asking customers to be able to vote for other items. We had that at the beginning, and we brought it back recently through what we call our talent lab, where you can do more than voting for an item. You can actually pledge some money. And you so can so kind of finance it. That's quite interesting. Talent lab is amazing. It's, it's a platform on which we're going to upload designs that a community of designers has uh, been proposing. And as a customer, you can either start it or you can actually pledge. And to give you real, real numbers, I think last time I checked, you have a, an amazing, cute table lamp that is going to be retailed if we retail it at £25 unmade. You can pledge now £5, and then your price that is going to be on sale is going to be 18 So, eight, And you're going to have to, to pay the 13 difference. And is that contractual, a pledge? Yeah, you have the ability to so take it's it It's an indication of interest. It's an indication. I mean, you never know what happens. If people want to change their mind, you need to be able to let them t- change their mind. But I think the idea of pledging is much stronger than the idea of voting. And people actually really like that. But what's really interesting with you is you now have high street yep. showrooms. So why everyone's retreating out of the high street and you're appearing on it. Why? Be- because people ask for it. We started trading on March 21st, 2010, and we opened the showroom in September 2012. For two years and a half, we were receiving emails every day from people asking for a showroom. And we were telling them, and we built a macro for that, telling them that 
we couldn't have a showroom because that would be too costly and therefore too pricey for them. And that was the way we were saving on costs. And but then we were we kept receiving requests on everything. And it was a pretty hard choice in a way because everything was telling us we didn't need it. Fifty percent of our sales were coming for from sofas. Part and, of and, and usually you want a showroom because you want to be sitting on a sofa. Yeah, Nobody I mean, should order a sofa online. How many skis are you do? Just talking through the collections and yeah. the skews. How does that work in a showroom? Or do you just put the, the star products in there? It's a mix. I mean, we will try and have one item per collection so that people, if they don't find the item they want, can understand the quality of that collection. So it's more experiential in a way. Is it, is, is it one in every city or is it it's it's not, it's not one, one in every high per, street? We have a few in the UK. We only have one in France, one in Netherlands, one in Germany. And the same model, you talk about Amsterdam and Germany, and does the same model roll out in across Europe or even yep. further afield than that? So amazing equity story. Every country we launched in followed the same growth path on pattern as the UK. A bit quicker usually because now it's easier to launch. We have a better know-how. We have more items, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we... You have a lot of ways of looking at international expansion when you launch your brand. Do you go to 10 countries at a time or do you go country by country? On, in our case, you had two big reasons that made it impossible to open in 20 countries at a time. The first one, the core one, is we need local logistics. We have big items. We can't use uh, FedEx to FedEx a sofa to somebody in the, in the US or in, or in Germany from the UK. So we had to build local logistics, which also needs unit volumes. And the second part is for a country to be profitable, which is the end game of every brand, we need two things. We need awareness and we need volumes so that we're fixed cost or amortized. So a lot of people listening to this, who you know, you've got a business which is established, there's a model that works, yep. and you're thinking of being international. <laughs> and you mentioned a couple there, but just give a few top tips about going international because it's not always that straightforward. Well, on, on international, the biggest tip ever is plan it well. So don't do it for the wrong reasons. I keep hearing companies going international because they can't be profitable in their own country. It's vanity. It might work sometimes, but it's terribly risky. Our investors were very willing for us to go to Europe or the US or China or the f Brazil from day one. We even had one who wanted to write it in the term sheet that we needed to go to France within a year. And we said no. And we said no for one reason, which was that we, we have a complex business and we wanted to be ready. And at some point, which was three years in, we decided to go to the easiest country for us, for three French people on the same time zone, two hours in Eurostar, which was France. So step by step, then you plan it. Then you do your homework. And even though we were very good at doing our homework, we, we failed once. I mean, we failed a lot of times, but in international expansion, we launched in Italy, first of all, for the wrong reasons originally. And then we launch with, with, it's a very basic thing, we launch with the same payment methods as in France and the UK because France and the UK have the same ones. So Italy, we, we, we did that and we didn't uh, have... Why was Italy the wrong reason you mentioned? Uh, we went to Italy because we had a, a deal with a media partner over there. And Italy is, is a tough market e-commerce-wise. I mean, online penetration is, is lower than in other countries. Um, on people are not very used to pay by card. They pay by cash. So your conversion rate in Italy very often, from what we learned from competition in every industry, was usually twice, I mean, two, three times lower than, 
than the rest of Europe. And it's very hard in this case to build a business. That we launched in Italy without PayPal and without bank transfers as payment options. On the day we, we launched them, we doubled the conversion. So that's that's called planning. That's that's doing your homework. And the brand works anywhere? The brand works everywhere. And I think this is due to the fact that we're different. We have that USP on that personality that makes us different. I mean, we could think that it's more UK, but then it works in France, and then you're like, it's not going to work in Germany. But actually, we're quite different from German brands, but that might be why people buy from us. You don't need the whole market. You need your core market. So you're working with um, startups now and scale-ups, yep. offering advice. So given your vast experience with me, let's try and provide some advice to those listening. I saw on uh, Twitter recently you said that it doesn't take a huge innovation to revolutionise an industry. It just takes a sharp person who understands which small part of it can improve the experience of millions of people. Yeah, you're good because I don't, I don't tweet too much. <laughs> so um, that's the one that stood out. <laughs> so just t- talk us through that then because it, it sounds obvious, but there's quite a lot in there. What I mean by that is a lot of people are asking you about innovation, on what's innovative in made, on what's the role of innovation in every company. And I think there is a big mistake out there about how to be innovative. People think that you have to invent something different to be innovative, and that's going to create a market. And I think that you don't have to invent anything. Uber or Spotify, they don't have tech innovations. They are service innovations, servicing very, very well a need from the customers that customers were already expressing. They didn't invent anything. What we did at Made, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We just listened to customer feedback. And what we did is, as I explained before, is a lot of people said we were an e-commerce company. We took furniture online, and that's a huge innovation. You know what? E-commerce is what made it possible to innovate. Thanks to e-commerce, we could target one whole country with one inventory on one shop. Amazing. So you're now involved in an organization called the Entrepreneurs Partnership. Yeah. You're dedicated to helping you know, businesses scale. So when you're, I'm sure you talk to rooms of entrepreneurs from time to time, I'm sure you do that. And you've got five top tips for them. And not just about, you know, selling furniture. What are they? Um, I have more. I'll shoot tips and then we'll see whether we have three or ten. Um, first of all, you use the word which is very important, which is scaling. The toughest moment at made was not when we started, and people don't, don't get that, but it was very hard. But you don't care. You have energy and you have nothing to lose and just make it work. When it scales, you have a lot of things to lose. You have a lot of day-to-day issues. You have a lot of problems with your customers, logistics, partners, teams, and everything. Scaling a company is hard. I think the hardest moment is not the zero to two. It's the two million to 20 and the 20 to 100. So if you want to scale, tips. Um have a very strong USP. Today, especially today, when you launch a business, you're going to have a lot of competition. The good thing is you have a lot of funding out there. The bad thing is you have a lot of people doing the same thing as you will do because if you do well, everybody will come for you. And it's normal. And it's maybe good for the customers. It's hard for building a business. What makes you different is your USP. First of all, you need to answer a customer problem. You really need to be answering something. Don't invent anything. Answer a problem, a need. Step two, be different from what the other guys do. Step three, try on bets on leverage a skill that you have, if you can. What makes you, Julian, whoever, different from the other ones? If you try to be different in something that you don't master, it's going to be more complicated. Then the biggest advice I've been giving is listen to your customers on, how, on integrate customer feedback in your journey as much as you can. 
And I was in Spain on a panel yesterday evening and I had amazing people there. And the whole question was on the importance of risk-taking. And I think one of, one of the things that everybody agreed on, on they were coming from very different industries. But everybody agreed on the fact that the biggest risk in life on take it for business is to stop taking risks. So you've been on an amazing journey and your business has changed dramatically, but now you're not in the business. Yeah. So what was, that, what was it like for you to begin to let go of those reins? Because you didn't leave overnight, did it? It was a process. You brought in people that I assume you think are better running the business than you were, mm-hmm. which allowed you to leave. So what was that like? At the very beginning, a huge relief because we, or, or current CEO Philippe was, was amazing, arrived in the business, uh, I think we were four years in, and picture it, three exec founders, never managed a company before, more than 100 staff in Asia and Europe, and I was running operations. My, my, my personal story is I was running operations in Shanghai, on Asia, on in the UK, and there was a mix of strategic processes on day-to-day, on a mix, a mix of continents. So you're living on a plane? Uh, f- no, I was living on jet lag. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, and that, was, that was hard. And then when you start having big, big teams, it's, you spend a lot of time managing people which is good, but which is really tough. And on, on you spend less time driving innovation on building new stuff. So it was a huge relief because not only him, but all the executive team we, we brought in were actually, yeah, were better than us in a lot of things. And we managed to find people who were expert in their field, but could still think out of the box. It took us a lot of time for every position because we didn't want to replicate what other people were doing um, in traditional businesses. So it's a big relief, and then, I, and then for me, it took me when people ask me how was it to leave and, and, and how hard was it on taking the decision. I'm like, it took three years. One of my co-founders left in 2015. Ming left in uh, late 2016, or I left early 2017, and at the same time, roughly. But it's it's a process. It's a process where you're you switch to new roles, which are really interesting too. You kind of know that this gives you a chance to let go at some point if you want to. Still your baby. It's still going to be your baby. But at some point, your, your level of stress goes down. Quality of life goes up. But your frustration level of not being able to make all the calls goes up too. And on the biggest thing is at some point, you realize that you knew it for a while, but that team is able to run it and to go for a winner. And that's amazing. And they are, the company is still growing 30% a year, became profitable last year, roughly. I mean growing in every department. They're still able to innovate. They're really good. They're really committed. And I'm still in touch very often. And that's a chance that not a lot of people have so if you, you don't tell. So you, again, as an individual, I assume that you do change greatly yourself, your own experience, your leadership capability. So looking back at it now, if you were giving advice to anyone listening to this podcast about what you should think about as an individual as opposed to in the business, what advice would you give them? I think one of the biggest chances I had in building made, and I say I because it's, it's I'm pretty sure this is shared, but it's very personal, is, is, is the people I had around me. First of all, we were four, I mean, three exec founders. We had an amazing non-exec as Brent, who we could go to anytime we had a question, anytime we were needing someone, we were needing a, an intro uh, on, on everything. That helps he's got, a lot. he's got an amazing network. He's He's got an amazing network and he's very sharp and he was very willing to help. He had a bit more time at the time. 
plus the three of us makes it easier because you never, you sometimes have to make call quickly or, or alone, but most of them you can challenge it. And then on the side of that, so you have this person as non-exec that you can go to when you have questions. Well, that's very important. Um, I had a close network of friends that I could go to who started companies to. Being an entrepreneur is, first of all, is not for everybody. And I'm not saying that in any judgmental way. It's, it's, it's really tough sometimes. And you have high highs and low lows and, and being several is helping, but being surrounded by people you can go to when you have questions on sometimes who are not your co-founders because you have personal questions is very key. So surround yourself with people who, who you can go to. If you don't have anybody, go to networks. Sometimes if it's a business question, get a consultant that can help you. If, if it's, a, it's a personal one, just like find people. I think that was our, our biggest chance. And would you go again now? Yeah, I would. And that's what you're thinking of, is it? Yeah. You have a lot of ways of going back into business on formats. But um, yeah, I think you. there are so many things to achieve now still. And there are so many important areas in life where you have a wave of innovation that's actually starting. Would it be in education or in sustainable products or in mental health? Where actually people start to be able to willing to pay for it so you can build businesses and help that wave go. Yeah, it's 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 incredibly exciting. Well Julian, I'll be looking out for that business too. It's been a really interesting talking to you and hearing about your made.com journey. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thanks. That's all for this episode and from me for this series of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest. Thank you to Julien Khaled, co-founder of Made.com and all of my guests over the past few weeks. It's been an amazing experience, met some amazing entrepreneurs. I've learned something and I hope you have too listening. To discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. From me, Piers Lenny, thanks for listening.